God. There's an outline sheet in your worship folder if you'd like to use that. Also, keep your Bibles open up to that sixth chapter of uh, John as we take a look at the uh, message here that he has for us. This miracle of Jesus must have made a, a deep impression on the disciples because it's the only one in the whole ministry of Jesus that all four of the Gospels record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle of Jesus that all four of them tell about. So it's obviously an important teaching, and it's an important teaching for us because it it illustrates what happens when we allow our our Lord to work in us and then through us as his people. We'll we'll hear this message today, but it just gets so aptly illustrated in what Bonnie shared with us about Zimbabwe. Well, let's first of all take a look at the setting here. Spencer just read these first four verses, and when we look at that and begin to get an idea of the context and the setting, we realize that much had been happening with Jesus and and his disciples, his followers at this point. Luke chapter 9 tells us that during this period of Jesus' ministry, the disciples were just returning after being sent out on a ministry trip, they themselves sent out by Jesus, and now they've just returned. That's in Luke chapter 9. Matthew chapter 14 tells us that during this time, John the Baptist has just been killed. And so it's a time of grief. It's a time of, of, of hurt in Jesus' life because of his relationship and his love, his caring for John the Baptist. Jesus is weary from ministering to the crowds. And he and his disciples have gone up onto a mountain to seek to be alone. And then John tells us right here that the Passover, the Passover feast was near. Now, this would mean that there would be tremendous crowds on the roads as they journeyed toward Jerusalem. We're going to take a look at a map here, and it just gives you an idea of what's going on and where Jesus and the disciples were at this point. All kinds of pilgrims from the area of Galilee, and I'll just use my, let's see if I can use my little dealie. There it is. Hey, look at that. Um, All kinds of pilgrims from this area up north around Galilee are actually traveling east and north. So if they're in Cana, they're traveling up around the Sea of Galilee here and heading that way to get down to Jerusalem. You say, well, why don't they just make a straight shot right down? Well, they, they would actually, in this area, they would go up and around and come down through Decapolis and Perea And then there was a ford in the Jordan River right around Jericho that they would go across and then go down to Jerusalem. Thousands of people were doing this. And the reason for that longer journey is because they refused to go through Samaria because of their hatred and despising of the Samaritans. So John is letting us know that these thousands of of folks would be moving on their journey to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. They're being joined by others who lived along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus and the disciples are heading east on the Sea of Galilee here. So they're they're traveling along here, and they're heading over into this area. They're traveling east, but as they're doing that, they see these thousands of folks traveling this north shore. Thousands of people. Now, they're wanting to get away for some time of replenishment, prayer, and rest. And they're watching helplessly 
as these throngs of people defeat the very purpose of the trip. Any hope for refreshment and contemplation went up in the dust raised by those thousands of feet. So when Jesus and the disciples arrived, there wasn't much time before they're being pressed by the same pleading, needy multitude. In fact, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, tell us that the people actually arrived before Jesus and the disciples did. So they travel that north shore, and they're actually there before Jesus and the disciples land on shore on the east side. So what we see here, then, is the fact that this whole thing is an interruption. For Jesus and the disciples, this powerful miracle will happen because of an interruption. Teaches us that very often seeming interruptions are appointments with God. So let's take a look then at the, at the test and the lessons in the loaves. Lesson number one, do not measure a problem or a challenge according to my own ability. I never want to measure a challenge or a problem just on my own strength alone. John tells us that Jesus turned to Philip and he asks, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Now, it makes us wonder why he asked Philip. Well, if you've got your Bibles open, you can flip over a few pages to John chapter 1 and look at verse 44, and it tells us that Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is nearby. So Philip knew the area. So it may be that Jesus is just saying, Philip, you're, you're familiar with the area. What stores nearby that we could go and buy some food for all these folks? There's more to it. There's more to it than that. Philip is confronted with an impossible situation. Now we're told in verse 10 that there are 5,000 men. There's likely then 10 to 15,000 people if we count the women and children. Where are they going to find enough food to feed that crowd? The question is clearly designed to confront Philip with a predicament that has no human solution. Now, there are times when we look at impossible circumstances along with our own ability and it can get fairly depressing at times. We look at the enormity of a particular need or a huge problem or an unyielding predicament or the the gigantic perplexity, the bewildering dilemma, and there are times when we can feel so inadequate that we just want to throw up our hands in despair. Never make it. Can't get through this. We can panic because we think my ability does not match that situation. I'm moving into a situation, and I don't have the stuff that it's going to take to to move through all this or to deal with it. But here's the lesson. Here's the lesson. God allows the difficulties. He allows the difficulties in our lives, and he allows the challenges that confront us that do not measure according to our ability. The truth is, Jesus loves impossible circumstances. We see it over and over again in the Gospels. And we know it even now, really. When we first started the project with Zimbabwe, it just seemed like an overwhelming amount of money that was needed. But what we see in this, in this story, in this account, is it teaches us this is so much more than just an historical account. It has real-life application for us as we're challenged with the uncertainties of a new year or the, just the ongoing perplexities of our own lives. Remember this. The words omnipotent, which means all-powerful, the words omnipotent and impossible do not belong in the same Christian vocabulary. 
Nothing is impossible with our Lord. Now, why does Jesus love the so-called impossible? Why does he love the impossible? Well, if you've got your Bibles, look again at verse 6. Remember, Jesus is testing Philip. He's testing Philip. It says he already had in mind what he wanted to do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Why the test? Why are we tested? Well, any good teacher knows that tests are not given in order to see how many answers are going to be left blank (laughs) to get the student to fail. That's not why a test is given. Tests are given to show what the student knows and if we can apply the principles that we do have. So tests are given for three primary ways, for three primary things. Tests are given to develop, um, to, to stretch our undeveloped faith. Tests are given to stretch our undeveloped faith. They're given to strengthen our eternal hope, realizing that this life is not all that there is. And tests are, are given to show the Lord's incredible love. We're tested. We're tested. Now, the impossible doesn't bother God. Can you imagine Jesus watching all those people walking and running along that north shore, Sea of Galilee, and he begins to just chew his fingernails and say, oh, whoa, what am I going to do? Now what? All these people, what am I going to do? What will I do? He already had in mind. He already had in mind what he was going to do, and he always does. But notice, notice that Jesus allowed his disciples to struggle with the problem before he worked the miracle that provided the answer. He does the same with us. Look again at verse 7. Jesus asks a question. Philip essentially responds with his own question. Jesus asks, where shall we buy bread? Philip says, 200 denarii, somewhere around from eight months to almost a year's wages. From around eight months to almost a year's wages, 200 denarii, somewhere around 240 days worth of work, Philip says, wouldn't feed this crowd. So Philip's question is, what's it going to cost? What will it cost? If Jesus had asked this question about feeding the multitude to an atheist, would the atheist's reply have been any different from Philip's? No. Is Philip's reply any different very often from yours and mine? (laughs) There's not one word in his response that reckons with the power of God. He could have said, well, you know, Jesus, I was there. I was there at that wedding in Cana where you turned water into wine. I was there a while back. And, you know, I was there when you healed that guy by the pool of Bethesda. He'd been unable to walk for 38 years, and I watched him stand up and roll up his mat and walk away. I was there. I saw, I saw you. Uh, um, there, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no store around here. Uh, we don't have enough money anyway. And uh, so, Jesus, I, I guess I'm just going to have to trust you on this one. And that's a really a pretty good response. Jesus, I guess I'm going to have to trust you on this one. But Philip didn't say that, did he? Much of the time we don't either. So one of the things we learn in this is when the Lord asks a tough question, you and I, we want to listen carefully. When the Lord asks us the hard questions about our life, about our habits, about our marriage, relationships, our kids, our parenting, 
faithfulness as a mate, our singleness, our use of time, our misuse of time, our use or misuse of money, our call to some ministry, our need of forgiveness, our next step of faith as a congregation. He's calling us. He calls us to look within. He calls us to examine our relationship with him, to set aside the the things that hurt us in our growth, and then trust him for the next steps of his provision. Now, we tend to get, uh, uh, get stuck and focus on the Philip question. What am I going to do next? How will I make it? How will I get by? How will I get through this? Who's going to take care of that? How can I get out of this? What's it going to cost? So this account here in John chapter 6 is a great reminder of where faith starts. It's a great reminder of where faith starts. And faith does not start with our assessment and our measure of things. Faith does not start with our measure of things. Jesus has the answers. And that is a great anxiety reducer. Because every one of us needs this kind of focus. We think about our problems, our circumstances, the challenges of life. Am I measuring my problems or the challenges simply by my own ability alone? What have I decided that in my life is just too big for God to handle? Just too much for God to accomplish? Is there some prayer or is there some other person's salvation or some financial question or some ongoing need? What have I decided, you know, that's just too big. That's too big. God can't do it. What have I decided? What have I put into that kind of category? The truth of it is, we were never meant to live that way. We were never meant to have to do that. It applies to each of us, no matter what tough thing we're going through right now. So Philip, what we see here is that he's at a hinge point in his life. Philip's lesson had to do with measuring a challenge only on his own ability. But you and I, we're followers of a bigger God. Philip looked at the crowd, not at Christ. He said, it's impossible. It'll cost too much. It'll take too much. We don't have enough money. There aren't enough wages. Couldn't buy enough food for all those people. And Jesus' response is, no need is too great for me. No need is too great for me. Jesus Christ has never failed us. He's never failed us. He's always provided as we've sought to be faithful, as we seek to serve in his name. And he wants to work his miracles in and through us. Now, the Lord has put us then, in this church family, in the middle of thousands of spiritually starving people. They're our neighbors, they're friends, co-workers, loved ones, looking for all kinds of things. Seeking, seeking, all kinds of stuff and whatever to give them meaning and purpose, looking for anything that might fill that God-shaped void inside, that emptiness. They're spiritually hungry. And here we are, and Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. And to do that, we've got to be more, more in prayer, more in prayer, more dependent, more generous, more giving, more sacrificial, because you and I, all of us together, are called to, be su- called to be part of something that's greater than us, that's going to outlast us, and that will reach people for eternity. Because this life is not all that there is. 
We're set for eternity. But there's another lesson. There's another lesson in this. We don't want to miss it. Little in the hands of Jesus becomes much. Verses 8 and 9 here. Andrew comes along, Simon Peter's brother. He says, there's a boy, five, five small barley loaves, two small fish. And then he says, how far will those go among so many? Andrew starts out okay. He brings that little guy to Jesus. We've got five loaves, we've got two fish, we've got this. He starts out great, and then he crumbles, <laughs> just like Philip. So here's Andrew's question. What can we do when the need is so great? And on your outline sheet, you can circle or underline we. What can we do? What can we do when the need is so great? Philip says it's impossible because it will take too much. Andrew says it's impossible because we have too little. Philip looks at the crowd and not at Christ. Andrew looks at the loaves and not at his Lord. What are the Philip questions? Philip questions. What have I decided in my life is too big for God to accomplish? What are our Andrew questions? What have I decided in my life is too little for God to work with? Huh. So what's the model then? What's the model for conquering in the midst of all of our struggles? Jesus does not sidestep the situation. He doesn't go around it. He doesn't try to ignore it. He faced it squarely. He looked at it head on. For Jesus, the way out is the way through. It's a good word for us. The other thing that he does is he, mag whoops, he magnifies the need. He magnified the need. Who's the first? I'm asking you to respond out loud. Who's the first to ask about the food? Who was it? Who's the first to ask about the food? Jesus. He's the first to bring up this whole thing about food. It's Jesus. He doesn't have any problem with pointing out their lack. He doesn't have any problem with pointing out their shortage their want, without him. Without him. He's helping them to realize their dependence on him. Now, the little kid comes along and he trusts Jesus with what he has. And every one of us, every one of us is called by our Lord to share what we have and what we have received so generously from him. Our stuff is not our stuff. All of it is a gift from God. So whatever we've been given in talent and time and energy, money, resources, all of that belongs to the Lord and we're called to be his stewards and to put to use all of that in his name. Every one of us is called by our Lord to share what we have so generously received from him. And then what we see here is that Jesus does his best with what he's given. Mark chapter 6 tells this story, but Mark does something different. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, and then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Now, the intriguing thing that Mark, Mark's gospel does, what he lets us know is this. He uses different verb tenses in the phrase, he broke the loaves, then he gave them. The first implies that the act was instantaneous. The second implies continuous action. The breaking was immediate. The giving was continuous. The multiplication somehow took place in the master's hands between the breaking and the giving. Now, we think about that and we realize that this is amazing. 
But when you and I give to the Lord, when we're willing to share who we are, when we're willing to give what we have, he can bless in continuous, ongoing ways that we could never have imagined. When we give him our talents, when we give him our gifts, when we give our time, our energy, our money, our relationships, our dreams, our ambitions, our fears and hurts and hopes, when we give him our calendars, when we give him our, all of that, he can take all of that and bless them and then give and return in absolutely multiplied ways. All of this tells us then to look for the everyday miracles. Listen to how Philip Brewer says it. God uses what you have to fill a need you never could have filled. God uses where you are to take you where you never could have gone. God uses what you can do to accomplish what you never could have done. And God uses who you are to let you become who you never could have been. He takes us as we are, but he never leaves us there. And then he uses us for his own unique purposes, for our growth, other people's good, and his glory. So in feeding the 5,000, Jesus amazed the crowds, but what he really wanted to do was to astonish his disciples. He wanted them transformed. He wanted them fully dependent on him. He wanted, to, he wanted them to lift their hearts up to him, to open up their own lives in surprisable awareness of what God was going to do in them and through them as his people. Like those early followers, you and I, all of us, all of us together, this, this family of faith are called to be part of something bigger than us. Whether it's Zimbabwe, or the life of a little kid in Awana, or through youth ministry, or senior adult ministry, or outreach into uh, North Littleton Promise, our lives out into the community that surrounds us, our neighborhoods, schools, the hospitals, this whole area, this South Suburban ministry area, we are called to be part of something bigger than us that's going to outlive us, bring people to the Lord and transform them, and then have an impact for eternity. Some of you remember me telling you the story of my long-haul acquaintance at one point. His name was Ben. He worked at Albertsons. Got to know him years ago. And he was kind of a surly guy. And through the years, I just we got acquainted. He knew, found out I was a pastor. He began to say, yeah, maybe I'll come visit you one of these days. And I'd say, oh, Ben, don't get my hopes up, and then just crash. You know, and we'd laugh. He'd say, no, I'll come. At one point, he did. And then through the years, he started to become more faithful. He actually became very faithful, became a part of the 8 o'clock worship. And it was a, it was a, it'll be two years in February that Ben went to be with the Lord. I prayed for that guy for over 20 years before he ever showed up here. I prayed for him for 20 years before he ever showed up one time in worship. Now, I tell you that story to tell you another one. Just this past week, another guy at a different store, when I was going through his line, I said, I haven't seen you in a while. Good to see you. And his response was, I hate this job. Now, this is why he's checking me out at the store. I hate this job. 
I don't know what's worse, serving time in jail or working here. Talk about customer relations. <laughs> well, you know what? He's on my prayer list now. And I'll just start praying for, for that guy. Uh, I'd, I'd give you his name, but I think I won't because I don't want you to go up to him and say, Pastor Daryl's praying for you. I'd, <laughs> you need, buddy, you need help. You know, you know. It's like the guy that went to his pastor, asked about a situation, explained the whole problem, went through all of the difficulties, all of the, all of the ups and downs, and it was just miserable. The pastor listened to it all, and he said, well, I, th- I think we need to pray about this. And the guy said, oh, pastor, has it come to that? <laughs> okay. Now, what all this tells us, what all this tells us is that you know people. You know people. There are people in our lives that are in need of the Savior, or they're in need of whatever. And you and I come across them, and we can be a person of God in their life. We're called to be part of something bigger than us, that's going to outlive us, that bring people to the Lord and transform them, and then have an impact in eternity. That's what this scripture today is talking to us about. When you move through your week, further into this week, Look for the everyday miracles that will be a part of your life this week. Let's pray together. Lord, you have loved us and blessed us with countless miracles through our years here together. Lord, through this scripture and into this new year, help us to be aware of the impact that we're meant to have in eternal things. Help us to be aware of the impact that we're meant to have in eternal things, whether it's in Zimbabwe or as close as the neighborhood grocery store. Keep our hearts open to you as you lead and keep our hearts open to you as we serve in your name. And we pray it all in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.